Mark 14, verses 53 to 65. And if you're able to do so, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's holy word this morning. Mark 14, verses 53 to 65. Give ear to the reading of God's word. It says, And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of our God, especially the words that speak of Christ's sufferings on our behalf and his resurrection from the dead for our justification. Well, in a lot of ways, this is a very tough chapter, tough couple chapters for us uh, to read. I think I mentioned a few times, probably more than that, that the previous chapter, which is often referred to as the Olivet Discourse, uh, that's the one that where Christ talks a lot about what we think of as the end times eschatology, talks about the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70 quite a bit. Um, that 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 passage by many pastors and scholars and, and commentators, they say that that chapter and the parallel accounts in Matthew and Luke's Gospels uh, are among maybe the most difficult passages or, or the whole chapter to to understand, to interpret, and certainly to preach. Um, well, I would say, having gotten to chap- this part of chapter 14, that not for the same reasons, of course, but this chapter, in a lot of ways, it's much harder. It's not much harder to understand what it's saying. It's much harder to, to wrestle with, and uh, it's a different kind of difficulty in understanding. It's hard to fathom Jesus going through the things he goes through in Mark chapter 14 uh, and 15. It, it, in a lot of ways, we should be outraged when we read it. We shouldn't, we shouldn't be able to comprehend that people are, are capable of doing something like this to someone like our Lord, but that's what we see here in our text. Uh, back in the first, very first verse of chapter 14, this chapter that we're in, Mark tells us, he says, the chief priests and the scribes, that's part of the group that's in this part right here that we're looking at, the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him, that is Jesus, by stealth and do what? Kill him. They already knew what they were going to do. They had their minds made up. They just were looking for a, an opportunity to to carry it out. Now, last week we looked at verses 43 to 52, and there Mark tells us of the betrayal 
and the arrest of Jesus Christ our Lord. And now here in our text, we come to the account of Jesus, the first trial. Jesus on trial before uh, the Sanhedrin who were looking to put him to death. Mark brings that up again in verse 55 in case we forgot all the way back at verse 1 that their, their intent in all of this was not just to discredit Jesus. Their intent wasn't just to disgrace him. Their intent was to kill him. They, they would not, they could not bear for him uh, to live. And here in the verses that we're going to look at this morning, I think we find what should strike us as a really strange and unfitting, to say the least, scene. The picture in your mind of Jesus on trial before men, uh, a trial, a, a death penalty trial, a capital trial, uh, it, it should be mind-boggling to us to imagine how unfitting that, that seemed. Jesus on trial. Now this passage, I think, is surely difficult for sincere and sensitive believers among us to read, uh, or at least it should be. Sometimes what's the saying, you know, uh, familiarity does what? It breeds contempt, not literal contempt, but you know, it's kind of same. Yeah, I've read this before. I've seen this before. It loses kind of its punch. Well, this chapter shouldn't lose, shouldn't lose its punch. This chapter should be, you know, if you're, if while we were reading it, if you found it difficult to, to listen to part of it, uh, if you maybe caught yourself kind of wincing at things that were being done to our Lord, um, that's the way it should be. We should have trouble and difficulty reading these things we you know we, if we can read of these kinds of things being done to Christ without feeling which i think i know i do very often and maybe you do as well if we can read them without being struck by the awfulness and the horror of the scene that mark paints here before us without a renewed sense of holy awe at seeing the sufferings of our lord that he endured not for his own sins because he had none he endured these things for us for our sins uh, our hearts must be kind of hard or we haven't really taken the time to, to prayerfully think about and consider what these verses are talking to us about and what these verses teach us. Charles Spurgeon, many of you know who that is, great 19th century British Reformed Baptist pastor, uh, nicknamed uh, very often as the Prince of Preachers, with good reason. He had the following to say about this passage of Scripture and the parallel accounts in the other Gospels. He says, The narrative of our Lord's grief, if it be carefully studied, is harrowing in the extreme. One cannot long think of it without tears. In fact, I have personally known what it is to be compelled to leave my meditations upon it from excess of emotion. It is enough to make one's heart break fully to realize the sufferings of such a one, so lovely in himself and so loving toward us. Right? I mean, I don't know about you, but I I get more easily choked up watching a a make-believe movie sometimes than I do things such as this that we are so familiar with when we read. We should be horrified at the unjust suffering of the innocent. That that happens in our day, too. Not, Not as innocent as this, but we should be horrified at the unjust suffering of the innocent. And it doesn't get much more unjust or innocent than the sufferings of Jesus Christ, our Lord, the Holy One of Israel, the sinless Son of God incarnate. He was, as the King James Version of Hebrews 7.26 says, it says, uh, calls him holy, harmless, and undefiled. I like how the King James puts that uh, particular verse. Our, our Lord Jesus was holy. He was holy in every possible way. He was perfectly set apart to God in all that he was and in all that he did. There was never a holy man a man as holy as Jesus in all of human history. No one like him. A class of of one. 
He was harmless in every way. Now, the word harmless there uh, has the idea of, of a lack of evil. And evil isn't just uh, wickedness. It also includes, you know, doing evil to other to other people. There was not an evil bone or molecule in Christ's body. He never harmed a soul. You know, the, the, the Old Testament talks about him as that as one who would not uh, break a bruised reed, the, a, a smoldering wick he would not snuff out. That's how gentle and meek Christ, the Lord of glory, was in his earthly ministry after the incarnation. He never harmed a soul. He always loved his neighbor as himself. He always did them good, taught them the truth of God's word, taught them the good news of the gospel. He did, as you read the gospels, as we've read in Mark, he's healed the sick, he's fed the hungry, he's even raised the dead in the gospels. All good things. He's healed on the Sabbath. He's, he's done no one harm and always done good. He's harmless in every way. He was undefiled in every way. He never once sinned. Not once. I've sinned once in the last, probably in the last five minutes. We've all, we've all sinned every day of our lives. Every, I had an old Greek professor in college who, who English was not his first language, but he was very eloquent in what he did say, and he used to say, I breathe, I sin. He just, he, he just knew. He knows better than maybe some of us do. Jesus never sinned, not once. He always, always perfectly obeyed the will of his Father. None of us could ever remotely claim to have done that, maybe even not one day in our lives. Jesus was undefiled in every way. And yet for all of this, despite all of this, despite Jesus being holy, harmless, and undefiled, wicked men, even the the religious leadership of Israel, of all the people that could persecute him and seek his death, it makes the least sense of any any group of people. And yet those, those very people despised Jesus and sought at every turn to plot and execute his death, even the death of the cross. That's how much they hated Jesus Christ, the holy, harmless, and undefiled one. And yet all these sufferings Christ endured, he endured out of love for those whom he came to save. Here we see some of what our Lord willingly endured for your salvation and mine. He didn't deserve any of these things, but we did, and we do. When we see him on trial, he was tried in our place. When we see him slandered by false witnesses, convicted wrongly and beaten and mocked by the soldiers and even crucified, all of that was in our place, your place and mine, if you're a believer in Christ here today. You know, if you ever forget the wickedness of your own sins, if you want a good measure of your sin, you know, just, just like familiarity breeds contempt with, with things in scripture, we get so used to, we're kind of, you know, stewed in our own sins, we get so accustomed to them, we don't think of them for how bad they are. We start believing lies that sins can be small when they really aren't. Well, how do you, how do you rightly gauge or estimate the depth of your own sin? There's one place you can look, and that's the cross. How can you rightly gauge or understand the depth of Christ's love towards you as a sinner? In Him, you also look there as well. The cross and verses like the one we're looking at, this passage this morning. Well, the first thing I'd like us to look at from our text seems like a small thing in our text. Mark barely mentions it in passing. Uh, is that uh, he mentions in the first couple of verses there, fifty-three and fifty-four, um, that the Sanhedrin, the, the count, the high court of of Israel, convenes. But he follows this by a brief description of Simon Peter following from a distance. He says that Peter, although he had fled, he followed Christ, but he followed him 
oddly, an odd way of putting it from, from a distance. Verses 53 and 54, Mark says this. And they, they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. They assembled, right? And Peter had followed him, that's Jesus, at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at, at the fire. Now, the, the high council, or we, 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 use it, we use two terms like the Supreme Court. We have a Supreme Court. They had the Sanhedrin. That's what the Sanhedrin kind of was. It was both political and religious at the same time. It was the high court in, in Israel at that, in that day. And the Sanhedrin was made up of the very groups that Mark mentions by name in verse 53, the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes who had assembled together. When it says there that they came together, the word it means assembled. They, they, they gathered together with a purpose. And in case we weren't sure what he was saying, he mentions the high priest in this case as well. And so the high priest in this case served as kind of the moderator or the judge of this particular assembly of, of the court. So when you read verse 53, the overall message of that verse tells you that court is now in session. You know, you almost want to have somebody put down all rise. Now, this is, this is an official gathering of the court of, of Israel. And what do we find Peter doing when the court was in session? What do you find in verse 54, what Peter is doing? Uh, Jesus, back when he was arrested in the previous verses, uh, Peter had already, quote, left him and fled, as the rest of the disciples had done as well. But now, after having left Jesus, abandoning him and fleeing for his life, Peter's kind of sneaking back into the picture. He, he followed him, verse 54, followed Jesus at a distance. How close did Peter get to, to Jesus being on, how close did he get to the trial scene? Uh, Mark says he made it, quote, into the courtyard of the high priest. So he's, he's within, within sight, maybe within hearing of what was going on. He was close enough to observe the proceedings but not close enough to be recognized as a disciple of Jesus, or so he thought, and so to put himself in danger. He thought he was at a safe distance, even warming himself at the fire with the other servants or or the guards. Now, the one who swore, remember in the previous passage, he swore to Jesus that he would die with him rather than deny him. Even if the rest of these guys, you could almost see him pointing, you know, if they all forsake you, not me, I'm the guy that got out of the boat and tried to walk on the waves. You know, he's the guy, and he did try to smite one of the servants of the high priest, and that servant may have been an armed guard. It wasn't just some, it's the same word that we see here in, in our text. Uh, here we see this one who swore he'd rather die than deny Christ was now hiding out and trying to blend in with the guards or the servants. Uh, King James puts that word as, as servants. Now, there's certainly a lot of irony in this little verse. If you, if you take the time to, to look at it. Here Peter is described as following Christ. Now, certainly that's what he was doing. He was, he was keeping track and staying with him, but he's, he's described as following Jesus, but following him what? From a, from a distance. He was sitting with the guards, the ones who were guarding this proceedings. He was sitting with them, uh, and, and the fact that this, this verse can also, or this word can be translated servants, uh, seems kind of odd. If you think about, Jesus, you know, Peter trying to blend in with the servants, when whose servant was he supposed to be? Who is he? He wasn't supposed to guard Jesus, but he, he was sitting with the servants or guards rather than standing up 
as a servant of Christ. Lastly, he's described as warming himself at the fire. Must have been probably a cold night. Now, the Greek word for fire here is kind of an odd word for Mark to pick. Uh, the, the normal word for fire is not the one that he uses here, not the usual one that he uses here, uh, but it, it's, it's normal. the word he uses is normally translated as light. Now, why, why might that be? Why might, well, what did they use for light back then? Maybe a campfire, maybe torches, and they probably served two purposes, right? Light and warmth. But Mark, Mark could have said fire. I mean, the actual word that you normally think of for fire, but he chose the word light. And I think there's supposed to be some irony there that, that Peter is hiding out with the servants, see is sitting, warming himself by the light. And yet, who is he staying away from? at this dangerous time, the one who's the light of the world. He's not near the real light at all. He's warming himself by by the light with those guards the, during Christ's trial. Now, how many in our day in the church act very much like Peter does here in our text? How many in the church today want to be named, the name, they want to name the name of Christ, they want to be named as Christians, uh, but they seek to follow Jesus Christ from a distance, from a safe distance? They don't want to get too crazy and out of control. They want to be, you know, moderation in all things, like the doctors always say, right? They want, they want to be, you know, be around Jesus, but not too close to Jesus, because when you get too close to Jesus, people start getting uh, offended. People start treating you differently. They don't want to stick their necks out too much in the eyes of the watching world around us. After all, what do they say about the nail that sticks out? The nail, it's the nail that sticks out that gets the hammer. Nobody wants to be the nail that sticks out and when you follow Christ you will stand out you can't help but in some ways stand out in what you believe in what you say and in how you live many many in our day think that it's possible to follow Christ from a safe distance they think that they'll avoid the disapproval and the persecution that so often come along with naming the name of Christ and seeking to live the life of faith in following him but that's not really following him that's not following Christ at all. It's false following. It's not, and it's not really that safe, is it? If you're a Christian, is it possible to live in such a way that the world will approve of all you, all that you say and all that you do? Do you not have to make a choice to take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow Christ? The world will always sniff out and recognize Christ's disciples. They, they will make they will they will make you to be found out. Peter himself would soon find out that he couldn't hide. He couldn't hide. What does Jesus say in John 15, verses 18 to 19? Jesus says there, he says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world does what? Hates you. Hates. They hated Christ. If you're following him, they're going to hate you as well. There's, there's no two ways about it. In that same text, what does Jesus say? He says, a servant is not greater than his what? His master. They hated Christ. We will have to deal with some of that as well. And so let us leave off trying to follow Christ from a safe distance, as if we who were born again and had the Spirit of God indwelling within us could ever hope to blend in with the world, and if you have been hesitating, holding yourself back from following Christ in faith, uh, I would say this morning, turn to him and live and take up your cross and follow Christ today.
Well, we turn in our text from that verse, verse 54, from false following to false witness. Uh, the next thing that we see in our text is the trial itself. Most of our text is spent dealing with the actual trial. Seems very short, uh, abbreviated, the, the account uh, by Mark. It seems he has done that. Uh, and, and what do you see in this court, this trial? You see false witness being born against Christ himself by many people trying to convict him of a capital crime. There, think about that. People are knowingly, willingly lying, bearing false witness in a capital case so they can have Christ put to death. People, and it says many, many were willing to do that. Now, everything about this trial, if you read the text this morning, everything about this trial points to its corrupt nature, the corrupt nature in which it was conducted. Think about this first. First, they arrested Jesus without just cause. How do you know they arrested Christ without just cause? They had cause. They wanted to kill him, right? How do you know they didn't have just cause? What did they do first? They arrested him. And then what did they do? Then they looked for false witnesses. They didn't even have witnesses there to accuse him. So they, they looked for the, the they, they arrested him. Uh, And then they looked for false witnesses without him. He was not just sinless and without fault of any kind, but they they had no witnesses even to justify his arrest. It's not how it's supposed to work. They arrested him first and looked for witnesses afterward. They certainly didn't have anything to justify his trial without those witnesses. So what we have here is a predetermined verdict, a death sentence, in search of a reason or charge with which to justify it. Their minds were made up. The verdict was already passed. They just needed something, no pun intended, to justify their verdict. And so they went about looking for false witnesses against the Lord of glory. In fact, they had to resort for searching for them. They had to look for someone who would incriminate Christ. But Mark says in verse 55, they found none. Now what Mark means here, he explains in the verses that follow, he's not saying that nobody tried. He's not saying that nobody bore false witness. What he's saying is uh, they found none that would stand the test because their their witness, their false witness, kept bumping up against the witnesses of the other false witnesses. They couldn't keep their their story straight. He says in verse uh, there, he says that many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Verse fifty five. Think about that. Think about how odd and strange and shocking this this picture that Mark is painting is. Not only is the judge of all the earth on trial before wicked men, but think about who, who is the judge? Who is the one moderating this court? The high priest. You have Jesus, which if you read the book of Hebrews, I, I lost count of how many times it calls him the great high priest. You have the great high priest on trial before the high priest. He's the one mentioned throughout our passage, I think it's five times that this brief text calls out the high priest by that term, as if to emphasize what's going on here, that the high priest, you know, the one who once a year could go into the holy, the holy place to offer sacrifice for sin, what's he doing? He's trying to offer up Jesus, and he doesn't even realize it. He's trying to have him, the Lamb of God, put to death. So he's on trial before the high priest of Israel, and many dared to false, bear false witness against him who is the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. Now this brings to mind... Uh, Mark's mention repeatedly of false witness here. It brings to mind the Ten Commandments, doesn't it? Exodus 20, verse 16, the Ninth Commandment, it says, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. 
if you're like me, and in a lot of ways I hope you're not, but you know, when you read the, the, the Ninth Commandment, I'm guessing that maybe you do what I do. You don't translate it differently in your head, but somewhere in the back of your head, you hear it as don't lie. You, you kind of take bearing false witness as synonymous with lying. Now, it is that, but it's more than that. Why, why does the commandment, why does God state the commandment against falsehood as false witness, as a prohibition against not just lying, it includes that, but false witness itself? I think the reason is, is to show what the dam, what, what damage can actually be done by lying lips. You know, very often the commandments, they we call them, you might think of them as kind of umbrella categories. Each commandment is a summary of all the kinds of sins that fall under that heading. And a lot of times they're, they're spoken of in the, as in the worst form of that sin. And so, uh, if you think of the commandment against adultery, it's a, it's a prohibition against all sexual sin. But why does, why does he specify in the commandment adultery? In particular, of all the ones they could have, you know, could have said, it didn't use the generic term. It doesn't just say sexual immorality, although it does. The rest of Scripture says that adultery is the worst form. It's a violation of a covenant with your spouse. It is. It's. It's thievery against someone else's marriage. It's. It's all those things in the sight of God. And so, just like that, false witness is the worst form of lying. Because what is when you say witness, what kind of context are you are you thinking of? Court, a courtroom, somebody with their hand, so you know, so to speak, on a Bible and swearing to give the whole truth and the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. And what can happen in a courtroom if someone bears false witness? What's the worst result that you can think of that could happen? Now, in our country, it's less likely because nobody gets put to death in our country. But but somebody could face the death sentence over false witness. So that's, that's why the commandment is written that way. It's to show us just how serious falsehood can be. That it's not just a little white lie. Lying is not just a little, a little sin. Lying lips can result in the wrongful execution of an innocent person. That's what they were seeking to do here. And then on the Old Testament, that's one of the reasons why in capital cases and others, multiple witnesses were required. Multiple witnesses were required. Deuteronomy 17, 6 to 7 says this, On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Why do you think that is? All it would take would be one evil, wicked, twisted person to bring an accusation, and they could have someone killed, and it would all be, outwardly speaking, legal and legitimate. It says the hand, further than that, the hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Think, of, think about that. In, back in those days... If you were going to bear witness against someone in a capital case and you said, you know, pick pick one, they committed murder, I saw so-and-so murder, you know, you know, a John Doe, whatever, um, you didn't just get to bear witness to it. What did you have to do? What does the New Testament say? Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. You had to be the one pulling the switch, so to speak. You had to be that sure and you had to be that willing to make that declaration that you would go so far as to throw the stone, uh, you know, to, to be the first one to throw the stones that killed the person. 
other words, you had to be willing to commit murder yourself. You didn't get off the hook. You couldn't justify it in your own mind by saying, well, all I did was lie. They put him to death. No, you put him to death. That's how serious witnessing, testifying was and, and is. And so they had to be the ones to cast the first stone if they were going to make a false witness against someone. And so it's, it's shameful to think that so many people were willing to bear false witness against Christ himself in a capital case. And again, remember, we were told that the council were seeking testimony against Jesus for the, for the express purpose of putting him to death. Now, their testimony, their false witness, was exposed as invalid as it did not agree. They couldn't keep their their story straight, so others, Mark says, stood up again to testify and bear false witness against Christ by saying this, verse 58, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Now, we, we saw Jesus saying something like that earlier in the gospel, didn't we? But did he say, I will destroy this temple? No, he said, destroy. In other words, you, you guys, you know, you guys destroy the temple, and in three days, and it doesn't say anything about hands or not hands. You know, it's not, look, ma, no hands, I'll raise the temple. He says, you, you tear down this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up again. And they all lost their minds and said, well, it took 46 years to build this thing, and you're going to just raise it up in three days. And, and what does the other gospels tell us that Jesus was talking about? He was talking about his own body not the physical building. Now, in Mark 13, as we're going to be reminded of, in the previous chapter, Jesus told the disciples uh, that he was going to come again with clouds, and that temple was going to be destroyed. But that's not what those witnesses were talking about in that, in that passage. So once again, Mark tells us, verse 59, says, Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. Why? Because they were lying. You know, it's, it's, it's hard to keep your story straight between two or more people when you've made the story up, when you're telling the truth, things seem to agree just by the course of things. And so what, what are we seeing? What is Mark showing us by telling us twice that their testimonies did not, did not agree? Uh, he's telling us that they, there was no just cause for rendering a, ver- a, a guilty verdict in Jesus' case. There's no excuse. You know, if somebody were to accidentally bear false witness and their stories agreed, the counsel's off the hook. Isn't it? The council could say, well, two witnesses. We had three witnesses, and they all said Jesus blasphemed. What else are we supposed to do? But it's not the case. And they knew it wasn't the case. Their testimonies did not, did not agree. Now, what did Jesus say in response to all this? I don't know about you, but if somebody lies about me and I hear about it, I tend to defend myself. Maybe you tend to defend yourselves as well. I think it's probably, or most of us, I think it's our, our, it's like just the way that we're wired. You know, and you should be outraged. If someone impugns your character unjustly, that's not okay. But what did Jesus do in response? What did Jesus have to say when these men are coming forward one after the other and testifying false witness against him when his life was on the line? He said nothing. He didn't say a word. He just stood there. He refused to dignify their false witness against him with a response. And so the high priest, you can imagine him kind of getting frustrated at this point, in verse 61, he actually asks Jesus why he had nothing to say about these charges. Do you have nothing to say about what these people are testifying against you? And what does it say in verse 61? He remained silent. He remained silent. This brings to mind the words of Isaiah 53. I don't know if you've noticed the last few weeks, these, these passages in Mark 14, 
everything seems to go back to Isaiah 53, and I don't think that's an accident. But Isaiah 53, 7, it says of the, of, of the servant of God, the Messiah, it says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened what? He opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Twice, it says the servant was going to be a suffering servant, and in the midst of that suffering, he didn't even say a word. He did not raise his voice or open his mouth. Why did Jesus remain silent? Why did he not testify in his own defense? Because he didn't come to get off of the charge. He came to die for our sins as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, John one twenty nine. Brothers and sisters, are you and I not willing to bear true witness for the sake of our Lord who endured all of these things for our salvation as we're reading about here in this text. Or there's a hymn we sang a little while ago. It says, I'm not ashamed to own my Lord. And it's my prayer that you and I will not be ashamed to own our Lord, as the old hymn says. And may you and I take the words of 1 Peter 3 in mind and sanctify the Lord in our hearts and always be ready to give a defense for those uh, who ask for the reason for the hope that is within us, even if we suffer for it. Well, the last thing I want us to look at from our text is the confession of Christ. The good confession of Christ, uh, you know, the high priest, uh, he interrogates Jesus himself. Think about this. Uh, this. I know it's not the same as an American court system, but, you know, every court TV show you've seen, every courtroom, maybe you've been inside a courtroom, maybe you've been on, you know, involved in a trial of some kind, maybe you were in a, a, the jury pool. Uh, usually the judge is not the one doing the interrogating. That's the, the, uh, the, the attorney, the prosecuting attorney. But what does he do in verse 61? He asks Jesus... Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? You know, what's the old saying? If you're going to do something right, do it yourself. If you want something done right, do it yourself. Well, he, he's had enough of these bumbling false witnesses. He's going to try to take matters into his own hands. And he asks him directly if he's the Christ, the Son of the Blessed. And what does Jesus do? He finally says something. It's almost like he's saying, all you had to do was ask. You know, he, he doesn't say a thing until this, and he says this. He doesn't beat around the bush at all. He says, I am. I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Verse 62. Jesus could have kept saying nothing. And they probably couldn't have done a thing to him legally. They probably would have had to let him go. If he doesn't say anything and they can't find witnesses against him, at some point, no matter how long and hard they try, he would have gotten off. And yet he answered truthfully and without purpose of evasion, knowing full well what the result was going to be. He knew that his words would not be believed, even though he spoke the truth. He knew his words would be used as a rationale and excuse for putting him to death, even the death of the cross, and, and unjustly so at that. Now, in saying, I am, maybe when I said those words, your ears perked up a little bit, he, he's very likely making you know, the divine name, you know, in the, book of, in the book of John, for instance, a number of times Jesus has these I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. All these things. I am, you know. And when he says I am, before Abraham was, I was, am. It's a claim to be God. And so Jesus here, it may be a little bit of both. He may be claiming divinity as well, but he's saying that he is the Christ, the Son of God. Even if the word I am, the words I am here, aren't explicitly a claim to divinity. The rest of what he's affirming is. 
Because what did the man, what did the high priest ask him? Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? The Son of the Blessed, if your Bible has the, the B in Blessed capitalized, it's for a reason. It's, he's asking him, are you the Son of God? The other Gospels actually put that question to him explicitly. In Matthew 26, 63, and in Luke twenty two seventy. someone during the trial asks him if he were, quote, the Son of God. And so when he calls himself the Son of the Blessed or affirms that that's what he is, he's saying, I'm the Christ and I'm the Son of God. And everything else he says after it also adds to that exact truth. He calls himself what? In verse 62, the Son of Man. It's a title he likes to use for himself. Why did Jesus, what did he mean by the Son of Man? Why does Jesus call himself the Son of Man? What did the high priest think of and hear when he heard Jesus say, you're going to see the Son of Man coming with clouds, the clouds of heaven. Uh, this is a quote or an allusion from Daniel 7.13. Back in the Old Testament, the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verse 13, where Daniel received visions of one, quote, like, the, like a son of man, and that son of man was going to be coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus is saying, you're going to see that, and that's me. And in case you're wondering if there's any doubt what that's a claim to, this one who was going to be like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, Daniel says, was going to be given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And in case that wasn't enough, it says his dominion would be, quote, an everlasting dominion. Verse 14. Jesus is saying, that's me, and you're going to see it. You're going to live to see the Son of Man, me, coming in, in, in the clouds of, of heaven. Now, Jesus tells the high priest and the other mem- members of the Sanhedrin that they were going to see it. They were going to see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. What's the right hand of power? The right hand of God the Father Almighty coming with the clouds of heaven. They were going to see it. They were going to live to see Christ reigning at the right hand of God. It's, this is an, af- an affirmation and a, a, a confession of his own resurrection, his own, uh, the, like in other words, you're going to kill me. I know it, you know it. He didn't say those words, but that's what he's implying. I know you're going to put me to death. You know you're going to put me to death. But guess what's going to happen? I'm not going to stay dead. I'm going to rise from the grave. I'm going to be ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. I'm going to be the the Lord of all, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And you're going to see the results of it. You're going to see me coming with the clouds of, of heaven. Now, when he talks about coming with the clouds of heaven... That might ring a bell with you beyond Daniel chapter 7. You might think of Mark 13, the chapter we just spent quite a bit of time in, in the Olivet Discourse. In that very text, what does he say in Mark 13, 26? He talks about, he says, they, who's they? They will see the Son of Man coming in clouds, same, same idea, with great power and glory. Now, what was the context of Mark 13? Oddly enough, ironically enough, it was Jesus coming with clouds in, in, a, in a judgment. Not the second coming, not, not the one where everybody, every eye will see him, but Christ coming in judgment and destroying the temple, which happened in their lifetime in A.D. 70. So it's, it's kind of ironic that the thing that some of the false witnesses were accusing him of saying, uh, he's saying the, the judgment's going to come, and you think you're the judge of me. You're not the judge of me. I'm the judge of you. I'm the one who's going to judge the living and and the dead. So there may be some irony there again that they had quoted him as, as, as if he was going to tear down the temple made with hands and raise up a temple not made with hands, 
but certainly that's what he's implying, among other things, when he says they were going to see it. They were going to see the fact that he was the right, at the right hand of the Father and he is the Son of God and the Messiah. And his kingdom cannot be prevented by them crucifying him. His kingdom was going to be inaugurated by them crucifying him. And so them and, and Satan behind them, who lay underneath their plans, behind their plans, could not help, uh, could not do anything. They were helpless to prevent his kingdom from coming to be. Now, Christ's clear claim is the long-awaited Messiah and the Son of God was all that the high priest could bear to hear. He, think about this. Look at his reaction. Look at his reaction. The high priest, what did it say he does in verse 63? Tore his, his garments. Now, we don't know if he had an official you know, court robe on or something. Maybe he did. I'm sure he had something on that showed who he was. And what did he do? He tore it. He, he was so angry at Christ's words. He was already angry at Christ that he tore them. Plural, tore his garments. It's as if he's just ripping at his clothes. Like he can't get out of this robe enough. And ironically, in a sense, Christ's death and resurrection would do just that. It would make his office uh, obsolete. But he tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? The word witness shows up throughout our text. And now he's saying, we don't even need witnesses. Good. We don't have to keep fishing for false witnesses. You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? Why does he call it blasphemy? Because he knows exactly what Jesus is saying. Blasphemy would be Jesus saying, I'm God. I'm the one who's going to sit at the right hand of God the Father. I'm the one who's going to be the judge. And so he says, you have, you have heard his blasphemy, tells the court, what is your decision? And it says, and they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Think about that. What are they doing? They're mocking him. They're, they're covering his face, probably because they're cowards, but they're also covering his face and striking him and saying, hey, if you're the son of God, tell me who hit you. That's the kind of thing that they were doing. They convicted the Holy One of Israel of blasphemy. Who was doing the blaspheming here? They were, not Christ. Those who were themselves deserving of the sentence of death condemned the sinless Son of God to death. They passed judgment upon the judge of all the earth. This whole scene just is hard to even take take in. Their decision was unanimous. There was nobody, you know, dissenting. There was no one abstaining. They all agreed that he deserved death. And so there's no excuse, no split decision in the greatest mistrial and miscarriage of justice in all of human history. Now, again, this passage uh, is rightly very difficult for us to read, I think, and to think about. We don't like to think about it. The mind reels, our hearts, I think, shudder to think of these things being done to our Savior throughout this passage they mocked and beat Christ. Think about this. The same guards that, that Peter was just a little while ago warming himself at the fire next to are now mercifully, mercilessly mocking and beating Christ, covering, covering his face and beating him. And all of this, Jesus willingly suffered and endured, not for his own sake, but for yours and for mine, if you're a believer here today. There's a hymn that we're going to close our service with, uh, it's uh, one of the names of it is Man of Sorrows. What a name! And one of the lines, one of the verses goes something. It goes like this: It says, "Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah! What a savior!" That's the message of this text. Put put it in first person singular, just like it does there. In what? In my place 
condemned he stood. Not in his own place. He's nothing done nothing worthy of death. Pilate and Herod all said the same thing. He's done nothing. We've done something. And in our place condemned he stood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. No wonder Paul, you might have found these words strange when you first read them, maybe at the, at the end of, uh, the very end of 1 Corinthians, his letter to Corinth, the first letter, 1 Corinthians 16.22, Paul says this, it sounds harsh, but not when you think about it. He says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love and mercy and kindness to us in Christ. We can't even fathom. We read these things and we're almost thankful that it's such an abbreviated account because we can't, we don't even know what to do with it. We don't know how to comprehend these things. We can't imagine your son even becoming incarnate and becoming a man and, and living uh, a life uh, that he did, always uh, serving, always obeying your will and doing your, your com- following your commandments and loving others and yet treated this awful way. Uh, Lord, and we know that it's not fitting except for you were the one who wanted to send him to die for our sins, that you might justify the ungodly. And we thank you that you have done that, that in in our place condemned he stood. We deserve to be in the place that we're reading about here in Mark 14. We deserve to be arrested and put on trial, and, and, and we wouldn't need false witnesses against us. Uh, our Our sins would go before us, and yet you sent him to be condemned in our place and you were pleased to pour out your wrath upon him in our place that we might be made the righteousness of God uh, in Christ. And we thank you for that. Thank you so much. We praise you and we don't even know how to praise you enough that in there is no condemnation for the one who is in Christ Jesus and there's no condemnation as our psalm this morning said for those who take refuge in him. Lord, we thank you for this. We do ask that you would help us Give us grace by your spirit, work in us that we might bear truthful witness to Christ and not be ashamed to own our Lord and to call upon the name of Christ and and to have his name spoken over us. And we pray that you would help us to do that. We are timid. We are weak and afraid. Help us not to, to follow from a distance, but to confess him before men. And we ask that if anybody here this morning does not yet know you, if they are still in their sins and have not yet turned to Christ, we ask that you might... Open their eyes even today. Give them grace by your spirit to see their sin for what it is, uh, to see Christ, uh, Christ's sufferings and death being the, the measure of their sins, and they might look to him by faith and have life in his name. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.